You and Peter step out onto the outside landing. The sun is just coming up over the rise of the Mount of Olives. You can almost see your breath. It is so fresh out. Since Friday evening, you have been trying to do everything within your power to console the broken heart of your friend, this fellow disciple, your former business partner. But Simon Peter is inconsolable. He cannot release the visual of the eyes of the Lord looking down at him from the balcony, down from the place in the high priest's palace where they'd judged him. The crowing of the rooster seems to haunt his mind even yet. That was the last he would ever see of Jesus. He cannot shake that sight. And you are just now trying a different tack for convincing him of the Lord's graciousness, of his ultimate forgiveness before the eyes of God, of the heart of Jesus, though dead, to always overlook each disciple's many faults. When you realize you're half noticing the sound of sandals running along the street beneath the stairs, echoing along the length of the cobbled way in the half-darkness. You stop what you're saying to Peter and look down to see who comes. It is Mary Magdalene. She runs full speed up the stairs, head down, not seeing you standing at the top, and then is surprised as she almost runs right into the pair of you. Her eyes are wide. There are tear tracks down her cheeks. He's gone! Gone! You ask her what she means. She looks between the two of you intently. Someone has taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. She enunciates each word very clearly, even sharply. Well, down the stairs you run, uh, you and Simon Peter, leaving Mary Magdalene to follow as she may. Your only concern is seeing what she speaks of for yourself. Left at the base of the stairs flying through the quiet streets, out through the western gate, beneath Golgotha, out along the garden path toward the place where they'd laid him, through those twists and turns of the single-track trail, uh, beside the flowers, trees, bushes, before that final straightaway where the path leads directly out to the tomb. A tomb that is indeed wide open. A cohort of Roman soldiers is laid out in the dirt at its mouth. They look almost dead. Peter, having fallen behind you because of the speed with which you ran, now catches up. In classic Peter fashion, he goes straight into the tomb. He disappears into the darkness toward its rear. You are afraid. You are afraid because of the eeriness of the burial ground because of the strangeness of all that is happening, because of the Roman soldiers inert at your feet. You're afraid to do as Peter just did. But you master yourself. You whisper a silent prayer and ignore the counsel of your fears. Stooping your head, you enter the tomb behind Peter, in the dark, your eyes take a moment to adjust themselves.
There in front of you is the burial bench. There is a dark stain where congealed blood has dried. At the head is a thin roll of cloth wrappings, those with which Joseph and Nicodemus delicately enwrapped the head of Jesus. At the foot are the long, thick bandages with which they bound the body. These have been neatly folded and left there in a a tall pile. The silence of the tomb, apart from Peter's breathing, is complete. And that's when it hits you. You almost wouldn't have noticed it or thought of it. The inside of the tomb, you suddenly start to realize, has the particular scent of the breath of Jesus. Uh, The breath of a man you'd thought was dead. After a few moments, you and Peter walk back into the city. Uh, Peter is dumbstruck. You are beginning to believe. That evening, here's the scene. After the day you've had, after the word from Mary Magdalene over and over, I saw him after the comings and goings of many in the fellowship, some doubting, some wondering, some like you, thinking that there might be something to it. There are perhaps 40 or 50 of you crammed into the upper room of the Passover meal. Some are sitting, some are standing, some are asleep on the floor. The doors and windows are barred against the dark of the night and the fear of the people outside. The city's quiet feels to you and all unnerving. You yourself are standing in the northeast corner of the room, the door at your right, the long table of the Passover stretched out in front of you. Your eyes have been studying the folds and contours of Jesus' extra cloak. He had slung it over one of the seats there before leaving the room Thursday evening. It remains where he left it. Suddenly, loud footsteps. Coming down the street outside, uh, just like Mary's this morning. And now the pounding of those running feet rushing up the outside stairs, landing upon the landing, and now a banging against the door to your right by someone's fist. Let me in, a voice shouts from without. It's me, Cleopas. The door is opened for him, and he and the other of Emmaus almost fall into the room, sweating profusely, uh, breathing hoarsely, looking at at all of you as if crazed. Then their first words. He is alive. We saw him. Everyone in the room is suddenly on their feet, surrounding these two. They sit down upon a pair of stools and begin their tale. Of walking along the road and earnestly discussing the events of the day and suddenly noticing a stranger coming up behind them silently. Of his explaining to them, almost as if he knew the ancient scrolls by heart, everything about the Christ, the cross, all that had happened. Of his then entering upon their home, of his taking up the loaf, of the lamplight catching his features, his features, and of his instant disappearance, of their breathless run back to the city, of the fact again that he is alive, 
we saw him. And you yourself are so utterly transfixed by this amazing story that you almost haven't noticed that sometime during the telling of the story of the Emmaus journey, just across the circle of your friends, just across from you, Jesus is standing there. He is watching to see how long till you notice. Well, you notice. And it is as if all life begins again. My friends, I offer you that narrative, which is a combination of uh, John 20 and Luke 24, because I wanted you to see it through the eyes of that wonderful friend of Jesus's, John, how it might have felt and how you might have experienced the course of that day and especially that evening and that moment that we're told that Jesus is standing right there in their midst. And this week, as I've thought about John, and he is, as you might remember, the only one who eventually will die a natural death, He lives many, many years after this, many decades. I started thinking about the particular quality of the Gospel of John and also of specifically 1 John and then of Revelation. So I started combing through those texts and again, specifically 1 John and then some of Revelation because what I was thinking about this week is that from that moment till the day that he eventually went to be back with Jesus forever. All of John's life and his writings have a quality that I would describe as deathless. They not only come off the page at us, sort of lacking any quality of death, but they will not die. They just continue to echo out over the ages. I mean, our generation of humanity still reading these words and is overwhelmed by them. So what I want for you to imagine right now, I'm about to read to you a compilation of some of the most wonderful deathless words from the Apostle John. And the way I want you to receive them, wherever you are right now, you could be driving in your car, sitting quietly in the study of your home, wherever you are. I want you to imagine... It's as if you were actually living in the first century. That all of this was very mysterious. It still had that quality of an enigma about it. And I want you to listen to this compilation of deathless words from John as if you're in one of the first century fellowships. As if this was a letter itself that had just come to you and was being whispered quietly for fear of the people outside. So I'm just going to read to you the deathless words that really jump off the page for me from John's writings, specifically again, from 1 John and a little bit of Revelation. So sit back, maybe close your eyes, and let's be swept off our feet by the deathless words. We know that the Son of God has actually come to this world and has shown us the way to know the one who is true. 
We know that our real life is in the true one and in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the real God, and this is real eternal life. God has given men eternal life, and this real life is to be found only in his Son. It follows naturally that any man who has genuine contact with Christ has this life. I have written like this to you who already believe in the name of God's Son, so that you may be quite sure that, here and now, you possess eternal life. Consider the incredible love that the Father has shown us in allowing us to be called children of God. And that is not just what we are called, but what we are. Our heredity on the Godward side is no mere figure of speech. Oh, dear children of mine, forgive the affection of an old man. Have you realized it? Here and now we are God's children. We don't know what we shall become in the future. We only know that if reality were to break through, we should reflect his likeness, for we should see him as he really is. We know that we have crossed the frontier from death to life because we do love our brothers. We know, and to some extent realize, the love of God for us because Christ expressed it in laying down his life for us. The world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear. But the man who is following God's will is part of the permanent and cannot die. Everyone who acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God lives in him, and he lives in God. So we have come to know and trust the love God has for us. Uh, God is love. And the man whose life is lived in love does, in fact, live in God. And God does, in fact, live in him. So, our love for him grows more and more, filling us with complete confidence for the day when he shall judge all men. For we realize that our life in this world is actually his life lived in us. If we love each other, God does actually live within us, and his love grows in us towards perfection. And as I wrote above, the guarantee of our living in him and his living in us is the share of his own spirit which he gives us. You know that his spirit teaches you about all things, always telling you the truth and never telling you a lie. So, as he has taught you, live continually in him. Yes, now, little children, remember to live continually in him so that if he were suddenly to reveal himself, we should still know exactly where we stand and should not have to shrink away from his presence. If a man should sin, remember that our advocate before the Father is Jesus Christ the righteous, the one who made personal atonement for our sins and for those of the rest of the world as well. If we freely admit that we have sinned, we find God utterly reliable and straightforward 
He forgives our sins and makes us thoroughly clean from all that is evil. God is infinitely greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. And if, dear friends of mine, when we realize this, our hearts no longer accuse us, we may have the utmost confidence in God's presence. We receive whatever we ask for because we are obeying His orders and following His plans. His orders are that we should put our trust in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, as we used to hear Him say in person. For yourselves, I beg you to stick to the original teaching. If you do, you will be living in fellowship with both the Father and the Son. And that means sharing His own life forever as He has promised. I am not writing to you tell you of any new command, brothers of mine. It is the old original command which you had at the beginning. It is the old message which you have heard before. And yet, as I give it to you again, I know that it is true in your life as it was in His. For the darkness is beginning to lift and the true light is now shining in the world. See, The home of God is with men, and He will live among them. They shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them, and will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, and never again shall there be sorrow or crying or pain. For all those former things are past and gone. He who is seated upon the throne says, See, I am making all things new. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. See, I stand knocking at the door. If anyone listens to my voice and opens the door, I will go into his house and dine with him and he with me. As for the victorious... I will give him the honor of sitting beside me on my throne, just as I myself have won the victory and have taken my seat beside my father on his throne. So, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins through his own blood, who has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and power, for timeless ages. Amen.